We are continuing in the book of Ephesians, not Ephesians. Where'd that come from? Wow. See what that did to me? I just get near something, chiefs, uh, the book of Nehemiah. Is, is God's word not good? Has this not been good? A um, couple quick things before we jump in. We're in chapter six, by the way. So if you've got the booklet we have with the scripture and all that for notes and everything, um, it's page 36. If you don't have them numbered, them, it just says 6 1 at the top, upper left hand corner. Um, if you want to follow along, because we're trying to work with the text every week in detail. A couple things. We're going to have baptism next week, and I'm so excited about that. We're going to baptize eight individuals who all, in the last year or so, came to faith through this body. Um, like, didn't grow up with it or anything, came to faith. So it's really exciting to me. So I encourage you to be here for that. Also, with the missions conference coming in a couple of weeks, we always have people sign up to be hosts to have the missionaries stay with them a couple of nights. And every year it ten, tends to be the same people that do it, and we appreciate those who do it. But we really are wanting that some new people get to have that blessing because it's really a blessing. When you get to have a missionary stay with you for a few nights, you get to talk with them. Um, we had, we've had several. We had the Pinners a few years ago that was such a powerful time. Um, in fact, the last time the Pinners were here, they're like, that evening we spent in your kitchen with your daughters was really powerful for them. It was for us. It's a good way to, to enlarge your heart for missions, to get to know some people. I really challenge, and I know if I throw out a general challenge, nobody hears it. Um, I challenge you to pray about, um, can I do that? And, you know, we, there's the cards in the back. There's a way you could let somebody know and be like, I'm going to do that. If you scan that QR code, I want to be somebody to host. So I just want to throw that challenge out. So we're continuing Nehemiah, and so far we've talked about Nehemiah in chapters 1 and 2 being a restorer personally, right? It's been three weeks in those two chapters because it was so rich. And then in chapter 3, we learned that the whole community needs to be involved in this work of restoration, that we need everybody contributing because there's so many gaps to fill, both without, outside of these walls, and there's gaps to fill within the walls. And then the last two weeks in chapter 4 and chapter 5, we saw the opposition rear up. He entered the storm in chapter 4 where the opposition came against him and the community of God's people. Then last week we saw that opposition was coming actually from within the community. So in chapter 5, Nehemiah had to deal with that. And you'd kind of think like, okay, it's all done, no more opposition, everything's good till they get the wall rebuilt. But that's not how it works with Satan, Right? Um, so we're going to be in chapter six to see how opposition is actually going to continue, that the storm actually intensifies for Nehemiah. And again, this morning, I'm going to be pumping the brakes a little bit as we go through the text. Just want to warn you ahead of time. So let's start in verse one. When word came to Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem, the Arab, and the rest of our enemies that I had rebuilt the wall and not a gap was left in it, though up to that time I had not set the doors and the gates, so I'm going to pump the brakes here. Let's stop there. So what we see is, is the project is on the brink of completion. They're almost done. They are days away from the ribbon-cutting ceremony, right? Excitement is high. There are, people are getting ready, ready to celebrate. But as he lets us know in verse 1 that the, his old friends are back and they're at it again. And what's interesting to me is in chapter 4, when these guys came against them, he came against the whole community. They came against them, if you remember, trying to create through ridicule and threats, they were trying to create fear and discouragement. But in this chapter, they're not, just coming, they're not coming against the community. What they're coming against is Nehemiah personally. 
Everything that's going to happen in this chapter is against him because they know if they can take him down, they can stop this project before it's totally done. And in this chapter, we're going to see four different tactics that they use to take him out. And again, as we read this, just the reminder that Satan is the one who's ultimately behind all of this, okay? He's the one ultimately behind it. So we see the first tactic, tactic one, in their attempt to eliminate Nehemiah, it's in verse two, and it is intrigue. So look at verse two. Sanballat and Geshem sent me this message. Come, let us meet together in one of the villages on the plain of Ono. So stop there. They're like, hey, it's almost like Nehemiah, let bygones be bygones. Everything's cool. Let's get together. Let's have a peace summit. Let's come to an agreement with each other. Um, But Nehemiah knows there's more going on. The plain of Ono is up here. We've already talked about how surrounded they were by the enemy, right? And again, I want to remind you, this map is in the back of the booklet. Um, Exactly, it is on the screen without the red squares on it. But that's the plain of Ono. It is 27 miles northwest of Jerusalem. If you've ever gone to Israel, you flew into Ben-Gurion Airport in Tel Aviv, and that's essentially where this was. took about a day's journey for them from Jerusalem to get there. Um, And I'm sure, and you can see, it, it borders between Samaria and Ashdod, two of the key two key groups that are coming against him. So I'm sure Nehemiah's like, hmm, I wonder what's going to happen there. Are they going to throw me a big party to celebrate that we're almost done with the wall, right? Um, he's smarter than that. Do you remember a few weeks ago when I tried to explain how surrounded they were by their four enemies? I kind of had this picture, if you remember. It would almost be like if that group, if we're working as our stores in Emporia and in opposition to us, they're like, hey, let's get together. How about the panhandle of Oklahoma? That's a pretty safe place to go, Right. I mean, we have goodwill in this invitation, so how about goodwill, Oklahoma? Or we're, op- we're optimistic of a good outcome of a peace meeting, so how about if we meet in Optima, Oklahoma, right? Trying to lure him away from the safety of the city. But Nehemiah is smart. Um, he knows what's really going on, that it was a very dangerous place to go for a meeting. He smells treachery and all of this. So we see his thoughts and his response at the end of verse 2 and in verse 3. So the end of verse 2, but they were scheming to harm me. He knew they were trying to lure him out of the safety of Jerusalem, most likely to assassinate him, right? And he knew if he showed up there in that place, he would end up with concrete boots um, or concrete shoes. Probably those of us who lived in the 70s get that more, what that means. But what I love is how discerning he is, and we're going to see this. We've seen it in the book already, but we see it in this chapter several times. Um, and I don't have time to go into this morning, but spiritual discernment, I think, is a key attribute of somebody living as a restore. The ability to see into hearts, to see into situations, to see into the schemes of the enemy, and to know what's really going on. So verse 3 is his response. So I sent messengers to them with this reply. I'm carrying on a great project, and I cannot go down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and go down to you? So he simply says, hey, thanks, but no thanks. I don't have time. I'm working on a really huge, important project. And I think in reality what he's saying is, is I'm not going to allow you to distract me from the mission, which is what the enemy always wants. And I, to me, this is one of his greatest strengths, his ability to focus. We see it all through the book, to focus on Um, the capital P prize, which is on the Lord. We've seen that a lot. But his ability to focus on the lowercase p prize, which is the completion of the wall. If you're a golfer, you would appreciate this. I'm not a golfer. I've pretended. 
Um, no amount of advice will help a golfer who will not keep his eye on the ball. And Nehemiah knows that. So now to verse 4. Four times they sent me the same message. And each time I gave them the same answer. And you're gonna, this word's going to come up a lot this morning, but they are so relentless. And here, but here's what I love. Nehemiah is equally relentless. He's equally relentless. He responds with the same answer every time. So he's not taking the bait. They knew it. So they knew they had to come up with a new tactic to lure him out of Jerusalem. And so we're going to see them change tactics, and they move on to tactic number two in verses five to seven, and that tactic is innuendo. So, verse five. Then the fifth time, Samballat sent his aid to me with the same message, and in his hand was an unsealed letter, in which was written, it is reported among the nations, and Geshem says it's true, and we know by now that if Geshem says it's true, it's true, right? So that's that, that fine, upstanding citizen, Geshem. He says, it's reported among the nations, and Geshem says it's true, that you and the Jews are plotting to revolt, and therefore you're building the wall. Moreover, according to these reports, you're about to become their king, and have even appointed prophets to make this proclamation about you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah. Now, this report, we'll get back to the king, so come, let us meet together. So this tactic is all about rumors, and it's about gossip. And there's three primary accusations in this report. One, you're plotting to revolt against King Artaxerxes. You're about to make yourself king. And you've actually hired out a prophet who's going to make that announcement and lay his hands on you to make you king. Before looking at his response, um, I want to show you a very important cultural detail in here. We're told at the end of verse 5 that it's an unsealed letter. Put a box around that in your text. It's an unsealed letter. This is really significant because in that culture, anytime a king or a high official sent any official correspondence to anybody, it was always sealed. It was always sealed, much like the official correspondence of the British crown in our day. It's the only way official correspondence goes out. Official letters were written on papyrus, papyrus sheet. They were rolled up, a string tied around them, and a clay seal put upon it so that only the person it was meant to can open it to read it. We, so archaeologists have actually found clay seals. This isn't the one that was used, but clay seals from Jerusalem at the exact the same time when Nehemiah lived. This letter was unsealed. Here's why. Because Sanballat knew that by leaving it unsealed, that as it went from Samaria to Jerusalem, as it passed through different hands on the way, that everybody would open it and would read it, and that the news would leak out, the rumors would leak out that was inside of it. The intent was to spread false rumors so that he could undermine Nehemiah. And we know that it happened because if you look at verse 9, when it says they were trying to frighten us, that the word had gotten out and that it wasn't just him that was maybe a little nervous, that the whole community was nervous. Something else I want to show you in here that to me is one of the most important parts of this chapter. Because Sanballat's trying to strong arm Nehemiah through innuendo and lies to get him to leave the city to meet with him, Right? And as we're going to see in a moment, Nehemiah is wise to what he's doing. But the word is not used in these verses, but it's used three times in this chapter. And I'd like us to circle them. And it's the word intimidate. Okay? Very important word. You'll find it near the beginning of verse 13. Almost like two lines up, kind of on the right-hand side. Circle that. Intimidate. Turn the page. Go to verse 14. 
It's almost right before verse 15, intimidate. So we see the word again. And then if you go to verse 19, Tobias sent letters to, at the very end of the verse, to intimidate me. So this word occurs three different times. It's really significant. It's so significant if you read Charles Wendall's book on Nehemiah, his chapter on chapter 6, he entitles Operation Intimidation. Okay? Now, we're going to see verses, in verses 8 and 9, his response to it. Three things. Number one, first is his reply in verse 8. I sent him this reply. Nothing like what you're saying is happening. You're just making it up out of your head. I mean, don't you just love that? Short, sweet, to the point. You're just making stuff up. And I love, he doesn't feel the need to explain himself or excuse himself, which I so desperately need that skill. I just love how Nehemiah does that. Second, in verse 9, he adds that he clearly discerned their actual motive. He says, they were all trying to frighten us. Circle that word frighten. They were trying to frighten us, thinking their hands will get too weak for the work. Circle the word weak. Circle the word weak. Too weak for the work, and it will not be completed. And here's what I see in this verse that ultimately nothing had changed, the the tactics of the enemy had not changed. Through intimidation, they're trying to generate fear, we just saw that, trying to generate fear, not just among Nehemiah, but among the people, and not just fear, but from two sermons ago, they want, Satan wants to, to help make us afraid and wants to do what to us? Discourage us, right? And that's what makes their hands weak means, their intent's still the same. We're going to generate fear. We're going to discourage them through intimidation. And then the end of verse 9, finally, he prays. But I prayed. Now strengthen my hands. Strengthen my hands. Gene Gett says this is vintage Nehemiah. And is it not? We see him continually, time and time again, praying, taking things to the Lord. So why that prayer? I mean, as I thought about it, I'm sure there was a weakening of his hands. You know, as awesome as Nehemiah is, he's human. He's able to be discouraged, right? Just like you and I are. He's not immune. And I think he's saying to God, God, I need your strength to finish the project. Would you please strengthen my hands? So they failed to draw him out by intrigue, by innuendo. So now on to tactic three. Tactic three, they want to destroy him through personal compromise, personal compromise. And here's what's interesting is they're going to do this one through an insider, through somebody inside the community, somebody to try to ruin his reputation and undermine his legitimacy by painting him as a hypocritical leader. It's in verse, we'll start in verse 10. One day I went to the house of Shemaiah, who we're going to see in a minute is likely a prophet, by the way. Son of Deliah, the son of Mehetabel, who was shut in at his home. He said to me, let us meet in the house of God inside the temple. So he really wasn't shut up in his home, unable to leave, okay? It's a lie. And let us close the temple doors because men are coming to kill you. Underline that. Coming to kill you. By night, they are coming to kill you. Underline that again. So Shemaiah is using the excuse of being shut up in his home to get Nehemiah to leave his official residence to come to where he is, to be alone, to get him alone. 
And once he's alone, he delivers the news. And the news is this. Nehemiah, I've got inside information. Assassins are coming to take you out. It could be tonight. How about we go to the temple? That's the safest place for you to go. We'll go in there. We'll shut the doors. Again, here's the city of Jerusalem, what it would have looked like at the time of Nehemiah once the gates and the walls were all finished. You see the temple there at the top. It's on the north end of the city. If you've ever been there, it's, I mean, it's a lot bigger now, but it's awesome to see. The temple on that north end is within the walls. You can see where the temple complex was. So that's the temple proper. But once again, Nehemiah sees through the ruse. Look at verse 11. But I said, should a man like me run away? Or should someone like me go into the temple to save his life? I will not go. Verse 12, I realized that God had not sent him, but that he had prophesied against me because Tobiah and Sambala had hired him. He had been hired to intimidate me so that I would commit a sin by doing this, and then they would give me a bad name and to discredit me. Underline those last eight words. Give me a bad name to discredit me. That's the whole motivation behind the lie. Give him a bad name. Discredit him before the people. And he knew it. He saw right through it. So wise and discerning. He knew that if he did this, it would undermine his credibility in two ways. So first in verse 11, he says, should a man like me run away? He knows if he were to flee the city or whatever, if he were to run in fear, that it would generate fear in the whole community, right? The saying goes, the speed of the leader, the speed of the team. He knew that. But more importantly, he knew that if he did this, he would utterly ruin his reputation, utterly. He says, should someone like me go into the temple to save his life? So here's what they were doing. They were trying to use his fear to have him commit the sin of sacrilege, kind of like I did a minute ago by wearing Mahomes hair in a church building. (laughs) Thank you for that, uh, letting me kind of say that. Um, Okay. They were trying to get him to commit the sin of sacrilege. In Numbers chapter 18, verses 6 and 7, it says that the only people allowed in the temple are the Levites. They're the only people allowed in the temple, and he knew that. And he's not going to do it. I just love this guy. His commitment to the word of God, to the Torah, was unwavering. Charles Stanley was famous for saying, never violate the principles of God in order to gain the blessing of God. And Nehemiah is like, I'm not going to try to get anything for my benefit if it violates the principle of God. I'm not going to go there. And so true to who he is, he holds fast to the law of God, to the word of God. Because he knew that if he violated the Torah in a, this kind of explicit way, he would destroy his authority, he would relinquish his leadership, and he would jeopardize the whole project. He knew that. And true to his character then, he prays. Second time in this chapter. And in this prayer, we're going to learn there were others inside the community, religious folk, who were there to undermine him, plotting to stop the building. So verse 14, here's his prayer. Remember Tobiah and Sambalat, my God, because of what they have done. Remember remember also the prophet Noadiah and how she and the rest of the prophets have been trying to intimidate me. And he's essentially saying to God, Lord, you need to be the one to vindicate me. And if you remember back to chapter 4, that prayer he had there that was pretty intense, it's the same thing. He's like, I'm not going to take care of this. You take care of it. I give you into their hands. I'm not going to be the one to seek revenge or whatever. And he gave it to God there on the floor as he knelt before him. And he said, you do what only you can do. And now on to verse 15, where he records 
in his journal, one of the most significant verses of the whole book. So the wall was completed on the 25th of Elul in 52 days. Man, underline that in mind. I underlined it. I put a star, circled the star, you know, underline that. That's so important. The wall was completed on the 25th of Elul in 52 days. The opponent's tactics had utterly failed, right? In chapter 4, they tried multiple ways, ridicule and threats, to get the work to stop. But if you remember, the people kept pressing on under his leadership. And here we are in chapter 6, getting attacked again, and Nehemiah keeps pressing on until the wall is finished. And in just 52 days, under two months, astonishing. If you remember how big it was and how much work they had to do. And now we see their enemy's response in verse 16. When all our enemies heard about this, when all of our enemies heard about this, all the surrounding nations were afraid and lost their confidence because they realized that this work had been done with the help of our God. Underline afraid in that verse. And then underline lost their self-confidence. So in the end, it's the opposition that is discouraged and afraid. God has turned their own tactics on their own heads and has thwarted them by doing to them the thing they were trying to do to God's people. Isn't that really cool how God does that? And again, just like in chapter 4, they knew it was God who was ultimately behind it, as it says, because they realized that this work had been done with the help of our God. Put a box around with the help of our God. So in the end, God's the one who gets the credit for it. And this was always Nehemiah's intent, right? He lived his life as a signpost, wanting to shine the spotlight on God all the time. That's how he lived his life. And, you know, all along I've been saying, as we've gone through this multiple times, you've got to love this guy, right? And here's what Nehemiah would say, is he'd say, you've got to love this God. Yahweh, the great I am, you've got to love this God. So the wall's completed, and it's all God's doing. They worked. Remember the tension of faith and action, right? But it's all God's doing. So uh, this is kind of the quieter crowd of the two services. Can we give, like, God a hand? Can we be like, yay, God, the wall was completed. God did it against the opposition. So yet, in spite of the completion of the wall, his, the opposition never stops coming against Nehemiah. They keep nipping at his heels. And we're going to see then in verses 17 to 19, tactic number four, tactic number four, ongoing, unending sabotage and intimidation. Ongoing, unending sabotage and intimidation. And here, sadly, we see that there are even more insiders than we knew who were working against him. So verse 17, also in those days, the nobles of Judah, were, they were sending, that's an ongoing action, sending many letters to Tobiah. And replies from Tobiah kept coming to them. For many in Judah were under oath to him, since he was the son-in-law to Shechaniah, son of Ara, and his son Jehohanan had married the daughter of Meshulam, son of Berechiah. Say that five times fast. <laughs> you know, I said a few weeks ago that Nehemiah of his enemies, Tobiah, was the director of intelligence. I don't know if you remember that. And we know because of these verses. And I want to remind you about Tobiah. He was a government official in Amman, which was on the, the west side, one of the western enemies of them, 
And, but his name is Jewish, Tobiah. So he's actually a Jewish person. His father-in-law's name, Shechaniah, is Jewish. And his son's name, Jehohanan, is also Jewish. And we're going to learn in chapter 13, when we get there, that through his son's marriage, he is related to Eliashib, the high priest. And so this guy, Tobiah, he is deeply connected to the power brokers. He's got a lot of inside connections. And here in these verses, we learn that some of the nobles were secretly working behind Nehemiah's back from within the city, communicating with Tobiah through the trading back and forth of rumors and information, and don't you know, a lot of disinformation. So verse 19, moreover, they kept reporting to me his good deeds and telling me what I said. I mean, stop there. This is almost hilarious, right? It's almost hilarious to me. His avowed enemy, they're trying to paint him in a good light. They're trying to paint him in a good light, telling him what they said. And then look at the last words of chapter, of, of verse 7. And Tobiah sent letters to intimidate me. I mean, it's almost, it's almost funny. Like, Tobiah's having them paint a good picture of him to him, but he keeps sending intimidating letters to him that totally undermine him. I mean, what's the guy thinking, right? It's pretty clear that he's against all of this. And here's what I want you to see, that even after the wall was done, the threats and intimidation continued. The opposition was relentless. It was relentless. Can you imagine the pressure cooker this was to Nehemiah? Pressure from without, chapter 4. Pressure from within, chapter 5. And now in chapter 6, pressure from without and from within at the same time. Can you imagine what it was like to be in his shoes in leading this project? I'm not going to preach on chapter 7. If you flip the page to page 40 and 41, and if you were to read it, you can read it later. You'll see why. But I do want to reference the first three verses. So if you go back where I just turned you from, if you go back to 38, you'll see I have the first three verses, chapter 7 at the end of chapter 6. I just want to hit it briefly. So 7-1, after the wall had been rebuilt and I'd set the doors in place, the gatekeepers, the musicians, and the Levites were appointed. I put in charge of Jerusalem my brother Hanani, along with Hananiah, the commander of the citadel, because he was a man of integrity and feared God more than most people. I said to them, the gates of Jerusalem are not to be opened until the sun is hot. While the gatekeepers are still on duty, have them shut the doors and bar them. Also appoint the residents of Jerusalem as guards, some at their posts, some near their own houses. So just like we saw in chapter 4, he's staying a step ahead of the enemy. He's already thinking ahead. So he, he, he puts into practice some things that will help keep the city safe. But to me, most importantly, is he appoints specific people to take leadership. You know, we saw in verse 7, if you remember of this chapter, one of the, the rumors in the report is he was appointing a prophet to declare him king, something totally a lie. Here's the truth, that much like George Washington did at the end of his charge, he's stepping back from power and he's putting other people in leadership, appointing people. That's the truth, not that he's being made king. And what I love about this in this chapter is he's appointing both spiritual leaders, musicians and Levites. He's appointing civic leaders, law enforcement and government. But the criteria for him and people in leadership, two key traits he was looking for, that these people had integrity. Circle that in verse 2, important word. They had integrity, and two, they feared God. Circle feared God more than most people at the end of verse 2. 
So much like himself, he wanted people in leadership who are people of character, people who held God's name and honor in high regard and who would therefore be obedient to the word of God. That's the kind of people he wanted in leadership. I continue to be astonished at how practical and amazing this book is. Each chapter. Okay, now on to application. If you remember, I ended the sermon two weeks ago and I said this. It's what I got from chapter four. There will be times when you'll become tired and, in the words of this chapter, your hands will become weak and you will face opposition. You're living as a restorer. Nothing has changed, right? Nothing's really changed. But here's what I learned from this chapter, that Satan is relentless in his opposition to the work of God. He is relentless. He is relentless. He will attack us through any means possible, both from without and from within the community, both. At times, even a combination of both of them, like in this chapter, seeking to intimidate us, to get us out of fear and discouragement, to give up the work of God, using, among other things, what we learned in chapter 4, using threats and ridicule, or in this chapter, using intrigue, um, innuendo, personal compromise, ongoing threats and sabotage, right, that he'll use anything to get us to give it up. So here's my application this morning for me. Two things that I took out of this chapter personally. Number one, be mindful of the battle. Be mindful of the battle. Remember last spring when we did the names of God and we learned that one of God's names is Yahweh Kana, which means I am zealous for you. And when I talked about that name, I said that day that God is relentless in his pursuit of us. And that's good news, right? But I also want you to know that Satan is relentless in his opposition to God. Relentless, non-ending, non-stopping. He is against the work of God, anything God has created. He is bent against it. He is bent against anything that is good, beautiful, and true. And we need to be aware of this. It's easy in our culture to forget this, I think. But I want to remind us, 12th, we're in a pitched battle. You know that? In the words of Ephesians 6, Paul says there are struggles against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realm. And we are called and we are empowered by God to, in the words of Matthew 12, 29, to enter the strong man's house and to plunder his possessions, setting captives free. That's what we're called to do. We're called to, in the words of Paul in Acts 26, 18, to open people's eyes and to turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, so that they may see, receive forgiveness of sins. That's what we're called to. And I want you to know, he will do anything in his power to stop us from doing that, anything. Because in the words of Revelation 12, 12, he is filled with fury because he knows that his time is short. So, be mindful of the battle. And secondly, I think knowing that, we need to armor up. Doc Waters, you made it into this one with that phrase last week you shared with me, armor up. In Ephesians 6, 11, Paul exhorts us to put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. And I want to challenge us to armor up in three specific ways. The first is to stand firm. Stand firm. Scripture talks about resisting the devil and standing firm. In Ephesians 6, 10, and 13, Paul says, Be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you've done everything, to stand. 
And in 1 Peter 5, 9, when speaking of Satan as a predatory lion, Peter says we not only stand, but we resist. I love this. Resist him standing firm in the faith. Because you know that the family of believers throughout this world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. He was writing this to the people of God who are being severely persecuted. We don't deal with that in the same way. Our Nigerian brothers and sisters who are here in first service, they understand persecution. They get it. But we resist him and stand firm. And I think the challenge of Scripture is like Nehemiah, in the strength of God, let us be relentless. May we be relentless. What I love about this story is that every turn when the enemy came against Nehemiah, they had to deal with Nehemiah and who he was in God. They had to deal with him all the time. Even though they're initiating a lot of times, the reality was is he was the actor and they were the reactors. And I think that is so cool. And so may we be that way. Because the goal of the enemy is to get our eyes off of the prize, off of God, and is to get our, our eyes off of the mission. So don't let it happen. In the words of Peter, 1 Peter 5, 8, be alert and of sober mind. So 12th, stand firm, don't give up, be unrelenting. In the words of Winston Churchill to Harlow School, never give in, never, 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 never give in. Not in his strength, I mean our strength, sorry, not in our strength, but in his And we can do this because we know of the affirmation of the Apostle John in his first epistle, chapter 4, verse 4, where he says that the greater is the one who is in you, Jesus in the Spirit, than the one who's in the world. Second, pray. As is true in almost every chapter we've encountered so far, Nehemiah is steeped in prayer. We saw it here in verses 9 and 14. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus said to his followers on a dark day, he says, watch and pray. In Ephesians 6.18 of the spiritual battle, Paul says, pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. As we're restored, we have to bathe our lives in prayer. Specifically in the midst of the cosmic battle, we pray Nehemiah's prayer of Nehemiah 6.9. And how many times have I prayed this? Lord, would you please strengthen my hands? It's getting kind of tough. Would you strengthen my hands? And I want you to know that God will answer that prayer because his word says it in 2 Chronicles 16, 9, that the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth looking to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. He will answer that prayer. Third, very closely related to that one, pray for your leaders. I can thank my wife for this as we were Driving out last week to Clovercliff, we were having a conversation about this chapter, and this was to her an important thing. She pulled out of it. You know, on more than one occasion in his letters to the churches, Paul asked them to pray for him. In 1 Timothy 2, 1 to 3, he wrote this, I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, thanksgiving, I miss a lot of words, right, be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority. This is good and pleases God our Savior. You know, in some sense, it restores we're all leaders because leadership is influence and we all have influence in our sphere of influence, right? But there are people who have greater levels of influence and responsibility and carry much greater weight. And I want you to know um, that Satan in his war puts a bigger target on the backs of people who have greater levels of authority, 
right? People who are leading in their homes, in companies, in offices, in the church, in schools, in government, classrooms, civic or positions, all of that. And these people need our prayer. Just this last week, the Christian school wanted to honor the local pastors, and so they had us come for a breakfast. And the kids sang for us, which was cool. They even did a little percussion thing, which I thought was really cool, being a percussionist. And they prayed for us. And while all that was happening, I know a lot of people in that Christian school, and I'm like, there's a lot of restorers in here who carry great weight and responsibility with a lot of children. They've got a big target on their back. So I just said a quiet prayer for the teachers, for Sally, the principal. So let us pray regularly for people whom God has put in positions of great responsibility and who carry great weight. Okay? Can we commit to doing that? Don't talk to people about them. Talk to God for them. There's a big difference. And then finally, I want to finish with one more way to armor up. Something that to me is really important. This has been the most important thing that I got out of this text and the most important truth I've learned lately. Satan's primary weapon, his primary weapon under all the other ones is lies and falsehood and disinformation. That's his primary weapon. That disinformation, disinformation, we've been hearing that word a lot this week if you've been in the news any. I could go to a lot of scripture, but I just want to go to John chapter 8, verse 44, where Jesus says this to the Pharisees. You belong to your father, the devil. You want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth. For there is, how much truth is in him? No truth, none. When he lies, I love this language. He speaks his native language because he's a, he is a liar and he's the father of lies. And that's what we see in Nehemiah 6. Do you realize that every time he's attacked, underneath those attacks are lies and disinformation every single time. This is his biggest tool. And it's the same with us. He will intentionally divert our eyes off of God, and I think divert our eyes off of our identity in him to lead us astray from the mission that we're called to and to lead us astray from him through lies and deception. So I want to ask you a question, and I'm going to go ahead and raise my hand, because I can tell you I can answer this positively. Do you ever struggle with any ongoing, relentless thought patterns and internal narratives that almost seem to have a will of their own? Am I the only one that has that struggle? Thoughts that so easily overtake your mind, they're like ruts that your brain goes to, right? Things that you almost cannot not think. Thoughts that express themselves in anger or bitterness, discouragement, despair, fear, deep shame or deep guilt, thoughts that end up discouraging us and defeating us. Those thoughts have many sources, okay, but we need to be aware that those thoughts may also be animated by demonic powers who are seeking to sabotage us through our thought life. So this morning, I want to give you a spiritual practice to put in your personal arsenal. I first heard about this about a month ago from some of the college students, and I'm thankful for them for sharing this with me. It comes from John Mark Comer's book, Live No Lies. And the way you fight the devil's lies is through the practice of talking back to him through counter-talking, counter-talking. This is what Jesus did in Matthew 4. Satan comes at him with lies, Jesus gives the lies no time at all. He quotes scripture to him, and then he leaves the matter alone. He moves on from that. 
And we need to do the same. And here's how you practice that. You identify the lies the devil tells you and you find a verse of scripture that corresponds to that, that counteracts it, okay? That's the counter-thinking, counter-talking. And when those thoughts turn to mind, you intentionally turn to that scripture and you quote it out loud to yourself but also to Satan. And in the words of John Mark, you refuse to get sucked into the inner dialogue and instead you change the channel to the truth of scripture. Because Paul says in 2 Corinthians 510 that we know his schemes. He's a liar. So here's what I want to encourage all of you to do. Something that I'm working on myself. Over the next few days or weeks, I want you to pay attention to your thought life. And I want you to have a piece of paper, a journal, something where you write down all of the lies that get spoken in your mind that you speak to yourself, the things that aren't true, the false narratives that you tend to think and believe. And as you do that, I want you to, to maybe with the help of a spiritual friend, somebody, to find a corresponding scripture that speaks against that, that speaks against that. Write it down, put the scripture to memory, and the next time that thought comes into your mind and wants to dominate your thinking, that you say that scripture out loud and you say, I'm not going to live in that thought, I'm going to live in this scripture, and you just meditate on that scripture as long as you need, right? Taking your thoughts captive. I, early in my Christian life, was taught with my personal temptations to memorize a scripture that related to that temptation, and when I was tempted, I would quote it out loud, sword of the spirit, which is the spoken word, by the way, but I would say it out loud to the devil and to myself. Nobody ever taught me, nobody's blame, but I never was taught this idea that I could do the same thing with my false narratives and the false thinking that I have, that I could take those things, I could find a scripture that corresponds to that and speak that. So it's a new practice for me. And I gotta tell you, it's not easy at first. It doesn't derail those thoughts, okay? It's not magic, right? But what I know is those who've done this over time have told me that you find increasingly you're able to get your mind off of those thoughts and scripture is the thing that dominates. So 12, let's put on truth. Can we do that? We put on truth. All right. Just curious, what's the most important thing this morning you learned? For those of you that were taking notes, it's probably, it was page 80 a few weeks ago. Maybe we're on 81, maybe 82, but find that first open one and record a word or two. What, what's the most important thing you learned this morning? If you don't have the notebook, that's okay. What's the most important thing you learned? What about the heart? We've got to take the word from here to here, right? What was God speaking to you this morning? What was God nudging you on? What was he tapping on the shoulder? Write down a word or two. How was he speaking to your heart? And then how about your hands? What are you going to do to apply that? Because we take how God speaks to us and we put it into action, right? How are you going to obey? How are you going to live that out this week? So a word, a thought, how are you going to do that? And I've not been doing this every week, but I'll share mine. Can I share mine with you? Because I've been thinking about Nehemiah for a long time. I've been thinking about this chapter for a long time, and I knew 
The thing that God was, I was learning is like how relentless he is and how lies are under everything. And when those individuals told me this idea of counterthinking a few weeks ago, that was a like a Kairos moment, like, wow, that's huge. And it didn't just go here, it went here. I've got to do that. And so that's my hands. As I'm in the process right now of recording the lies I tend to believe and the scripture that goes with it, so I can start doing what Jesus did to the lies of the enemy. So, all right, 12th, the enemy is real and he's relentless, right? He's real and he's relentless. But don't be discouraged by that because we serve Yahweh Tabaoth. We learned about him last spring. I, the I am is the sovereign Lord of heaven's armies and he's gonna be victorious, okay? So let us be mindful of the battle. Let us be people who armor up. Specifically, we stand firm. We pray, Lord, strengthen my hands, please. We pray for those in great leadership with big targets. And then we put on truth. Can we be that kind of people in the battle? Can I pray for us? Father, thank you for, again, Nehemiah, thank you for chapter six, for the reminder that there is an enemy, that he's on the prowl. May we be people, Lord, who with that knowledge that we armor up, that we put on your armor, all of your armor in Ephesians 6, but specifically that we learn to stand firm and resist, that we are people of prayer seeking your strength, that we pray for those in great places of leadership. We don't speak about them, we speak to you for them, and that we put on truth and learn to counter the lies of Satan with your word. Make us that kind of people. I pray in the name of Jesus, amen. All right, 12th, you are sent as every week to set captives free. 